It is a sad day for the DC3 cast, but we are here to get you all through it while we try and get through it ourselves. My name is Brian. With me, as always, are Zach and Vince. Welcome back, Zach. But more importantly, we're here to bid farewell. I'm not not good. I'm not good again, though. No, you're not good again. You're bad because of why we're here today, which is to bid a fond farewell to your friend and mine, one Mr. Daniel DiDio. Uh, Zach, what did you do while you were gone that you got (laughs) Dan DiDio fired? (laughs) It was extremely cursed. Um, (laughs) That's all I'll say. Yeah, so on uh, we're recording this on Monday, the twenty fourth of February. On Friday night, news started to break that day, or it was Friday during the day that Dan Deal was ousted from DC Comics. Uh, there has not been a formal announcement from DC, although Deal did post on his Facebook page something that essentially confirms that this is true. He is out at DC. It's odd because he was reportedly doing DC business as late as Friday morning and then was let go with no reasons been given. Um, there's a lot of rumor. There's a lot of sort of uh, speculation out there. But before anything else, I, I want to get your gut reactions on this, boys. Was the Dio's tenure at DC over the 16 years he was there more good or more bad for the company? <sighs> What a question. My gut instinct is to say more good. I, I think that's my gut, too. And I, I'm not just saying that, like, because, he, because he's gone now and I'm trying to be positive or whatever. I, I think we'll get into it. But we've talked about it on the show before. I, I think DC Comics is just kind of always going to come in second to Marvel. And that's a tough, it's a tough gig, no matter who you are. And, you know, for, for a short time, but for a time, DiDio had them back as the number one publisher again. And so I think like that is big enough. There are people that think that the new 52 as a publishing event, uh, quote-unquote, saved comics. I don't know if that's an overreaction or not, but I, I've seen people say that. I have a thing I want to say about that, but keep going. Sure. Well, that's I, I, that's just going to kind of end it there as far as, like, Brian's initial question. Like, I feel like, regardless of a lot of the misgivings that some of us may have, you know, um, that alone was a, was a big success, no matter what happened in the years after, uh, that that I'm not sure how many other publishers in that position would have had the guts to try or do to to fully commit to. I mean, they committed to that in a way that hadn't really been done before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think my gut is that the Dio did more good than bad. But I think that the extent of his good and the depths of his bad, we have no idea about. Um, so I, I was I was yeah. sort of playing this game in my head today where I was thinking about the biggest successes and the biggest failures of the Dio's tenure. 
And it's amazing how they almost all come back to back. So, for instance, <laughs> 52, huge success, countdown, huge failure. Um, you know, and can I can I interject for one second? Sure. Because that is so key. Because I think the 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 best thing about Didio is his willingness to swing big at some of this stuff. These these big concepts, these new different initiatives and things like that. Like we should credit him for that. But then his actual taste kind of subverts that because didn't right. doesn't doesn't he think countdown is better than 52 well, he he did yeah. at one point it was 52 done right if you recall right um right yeah yeah and but, so so i think like the point is key to like to, to <clears throat> say you know that's the good and the bad of the deal like i just don't think his taste really aligned with mine even if i admired his ability to see the big picture you know but anyway mm-hmm. keep going on that point yeah so you know uh green lantern rebirth very good Flash Rebirth, not so good. Uh, New 52, you know, hit hit or miss. Rebirth, good. New Age of Heroes, bad. You know, it's just all these, all these sort of big swings and misses were usually followed up with a with a home run or so. Um, you know, it's it's really pretty remarkable how how if if DC was structured differently. At various times, he would have been promoted and fired <laughs> for the things that he did. But because DC has this like very flat upper management structure, he just kind of stayed in place for a lot of this stuff. Um, and you know, it's been interesting to see people. So I'm not going to say who this is. Uh, a writer that I am that I, I was friendly with at one point. I don't think we are as friendly anymore. Um, he had told me some Didio nightmares many years ago, but he posted on Facebook after Didio was fired, like, even though we didn't always agree, there was I never had a better boss than Dan Didio. Uh, somebody else pointed, I think it was Liam Sharp had said on Twitter, something like, you know, I was getting a lot of flack for something with the Green Lantern when I first started, and Didio called me and said, put all the blame on me, I can take it, you know, don't worry about it, buddy. And the, I, I get the impression he was a very good manager of people. That said, there's a pretty clear um, history of him hiring white men and very little else. And I don't know how much of that goes to just him. You know, I know that DC is not has not just been under DiDio's thumb, that he was always part of a team, but he's been sort of the most consistent part of that team for the 16 years he was there. And they really haven't done a lot of hiring of women or people of color or non-binary folks, you know, it's just it hasn't been, or, or even, you know, LGBTQ folks. Um, there's been some, but not to the degree that I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen, especially because with all the reboots that he's done, there's opportunity to really bring in new talent and not worry about existing continuity or following up a previous storyline. There's been a lot of fresh starts that he's had. And his inability to hire folks of of different backgrounds for those reboots, I think, will be something that will be a blemish on his record in the future. But ultimately, like also, you, also like keeping around like really problematic people. Yes, too. absolutely. Yes, <clears throat> you know the the Scott Lobdells, the Eddie Braganzas uh, of yeah. the world. You know, um, yeah. <clears throat> but I, but I think when we look back on the actual comics that came out 
in the time that Dudia was in charge, I think that overall the good will outweigh the bad. And I think, I'm sorry to keep talking here, but I, I think part of that is because I think more often than not, the Dudio era has been marked by terrible public relations by DC in some ways. Whereas the comics are not as bad as the controversy that, spew, that spawns before or after the comics come out. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, like, you know, I said my gut reaction was good because I really haven't known a DC Comics without Dan DiDio, really. Um, you know, he's been at the company since 2002, I think. I believe. Well, I think I thought they said uh, I've seen the 18 years thrown around a lot. Oh, maybe I was wrong then. Maybe it is 02. Okay. Um, but um, so like that's one thing. Like I, all the things that I love about DC came out under DiDio's tenure there. So that's like one thing. But I also think that he maybe is responsible like especially with like the new 52 for kind of creating this unsustainable model of kind of like stunt relaunch that like new the new 52 spearheaded and then like marvel kind of doubled down on over the next few years and then like dc kind of like played catch up trying to recapture that magic every few years and and i just don't think it's sustainable and I think it's like I I wouldn't be surprised if ten years from now we look back on everything that happened, and and comics is like this nuclear crater in the ground, and we're like, oh, that was where it, it started to go bad. So the more if I like really think about it, then I kind of like start to wonder if maybe his tenure wasn't. It, it may end up not being good in retrospect. I think that's an I think that's an interesting point because I think what you say is true, but I I also think um it might just be that in this point of time in time there's just no other way, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be doing this if they, they wouldn't be doing Marvel wouldn't be doing constant relaunches if the other way worked better at this point. And Right. Uh, and I guess that's maybe maybe yeah, maybe um rather than maybe Didio kept comics on life support for a while. I mean, and yeah. to, be, he, to be fair, Zach, I, I know that that you know this, but like the '90s had a lot of relaunches too. They they did, yeah, I know, I know they did, but like, but nothing, nothing, gets to nothing like some this issues anymore. Yeah. yeah, nothing like not this like constant turnover and like churn that we have now. Right. Yeah. Um, um, Brian, I want to circle back to what you said about you know, the, the type of people that, that the Dio hires, I think, um, it is unfortunate that there wasn't more diversity in the, the writing staff. I think a lot of that stems from the Dio liked to go, but the Dio and Lee and, and Bob Harris, who, um, Oh, the less said, the better, uh, in my opinion. But, um, they they really like to go back to their Rolodex and their Rolodex is somewhat limited. And I feel like they, they pull from that because it's comfortable more than going outside of their comfort zone to, to hire other people. And I think that, you know, Scott Labdell having three books at a time uh, at times during his tenure is evidence of that. And that's setting aside even just the, the problematic stuff about 
Love Dell. Just just the fact that they over rely on their uh, on their Rolodex, so to speak. You know, the people that they know and, and have worked with for for years and years and years, rather than trying to branch out too much. Um, I saw an exchange um, between Amy Reader and Magdalene Visaggio earlier about how uh, Dio always fought for their work and fought to get them more work and and you know that they had really nice things to say about him and so the the shame of it is that it's not like I like I I feel like his heart was in the right place I've heard a lot of stories since his firing that he was always fighting for representation in the comics uh and you know to a lesser degree the people writing the comics but but i i just feel like when he whether he was doing while he was doing uncomfortable stuff with the medium of comics to shake it up i feel like he just got too comfortable with the people that he relied to for writing for him um and so I think like I think like the deal like at his core seems like a good guy based on a lot of these stories that I'm hearing. Yet, you know, like so many of us, is just short sighted or too willing to stick in his comfort zone or you know, just not aware of his position always or the influence that he could have, you know. Or, or maybe he, I don't, we don't know. Maybe he did uh, yeah. use it more than we think, you know? He, he seems like a really, he, he has a lot of internal contradictions, it seems like, you know? Don't he, we all? Well, we do. What, what, he, he's, he's just a man, you know? And that's the thing, like, he, um, you know, he championed, you know, certain up and coming voices, but he also relied a lot on like the old guard. And then he, um, you know, was notable for like hating a lot of legacy characters because he didn't like how they aged, you know, like the silver age characters, but then he, you know, championed the new age of heroes and supposedly like has been the, the stalwart for 5g and, and he, um, you know, all the ups and downs, like he, he spearheaded the new 52, but then convergence also, you know, and rebirth yeah. It, it. Yeah. And so it's, it's hard to say who can say if he's good or bad. <laughs> I, I do think that like one, one other thing I noticed um, when Axel Alonso said some words about Didio in the past few days, some kind words. Um, I saw some response to that that was like, oh, yeah, the two worst uh, editors in comics are out of their respective jobs recently or whatever. And it just reminded me that, like, the job of a comics editor-in-chief or a publisher or whatever title you give them is... (laughs) Oh, it's a lot lot like an NFL GM, you know, or like a a head coach or something. the GM especially like the GM is basically hated by most fan bases because they don't do the exact things that you want them to do with your favorite sports team, you know? So 
you're always looking forward to the next guy who's going to be in that position because things will be different. And I feel like it couldn't be more obvious that comics are that way too. Like, do I think Dan DiDio had great taste? No. But I think he did a lot of stuff. There were a lot of good books that came out under him. You know, it's just, it's the way of things. And I think a lot of his like bold positioning for certain initiatives did pan out. And I think it generated good books. Uh, any disagreements we have with, with, you know, taste are going to be purely subjective, I think. Um, I mean, he did make Reboot. I yeah, know he, he, made, he, he made Reboot. He, yep. he solely made it. It was his brainchild. <laughs> well, he has he said... The... He, Go ahead, Zach. finish up, Vince. He, sure. He, had, he has intimated in the past that, like, he's not the biggest fan of Grant Morrison as a storyteller. Like, he just doesn't jive with that kind of storytelling, you know? Uh, I can't I can't remember where I read that, but like not that he doesn't like Grant Morrison or does or doesn't appreciate his work, but like doesn't fully get on board, doesn't fully understand it, or like that's not what he likes about comics. But he's well, given Morrison so much Jokers to do. Kind of guy. He's given yeah. Morrison so much to do. Like there have been great Morrison books that have come out <clears throat> under DiDio, and some of them got messed with, and that's a, a mark on DiDio's record. But you know, he was there and he allowed it to happen as well. And so I think like like you guys have already said, it's it's a walking contradiction type thing. And everybody in that position is going to have good and bad stuff. And I think, I think if there's a true black mark for DiDio on his record that that can't be applied to just you know whoever's in the editorial position, it would be the the hanging on to like Berganza for too long. Um, and who knows who knows how much was really on him with that? Well, sure. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly. that's an I important mean, thing. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to say, actually. Um, I don't want to let him off the hook either. No, though, no, no, because, no, 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 no. We just no, don't know. But he, yeah, and I mean, like he was he was co-publisher, but he had people above him, and and I think like ultimately, the best thing I think be said, maybe not like the best thing, but like he loved the comics, and like there's a good chance whoever follows him up will not may yeah. not love them as much as he did. Right. So he I, loved Hanna-Barbera. Yes, he did love Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> yeah, Hanna oh, yes. man, he did. My goodness. <laughs> so I, I want to I sort of say three quick things. The first is that I, I think it's important to note that nobody on the internet has probably made fun of DiDio more than we have, yet every interaction I've had with him has been lovely. Um, he was he did very... it lovingly, though. People, people on Reddit do it really meanly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Our, we, we... our DC Comics hates probably really hates him yeah um but like he you know he was like our goofy uncle yes he was super kind to me both in person and on the phone in the past and um you know like on the the, the night that justice league number one came out and flashpoint number whatever six came out he came to my local shop and just like hung out and it wasn't a planned thing he didn't have they were they weren't advertising him being there he just showed up and he gave me the Wayne Casino chip I'm holding in my hand right now that I play with as we record every week. Um, and, like, he was just there because he wanted to hang out with fans. And he seemed like he was legitimately excited yep. about everything. It was just – he just seems like a, a genuinely warm person. And so – And and when your son was born, he called you and he said, he said, oh, where's my Dan DiDio? I don't know. <laughs> You're out of practice. Out I of haven't practiced. But he told – he did tell you that you could name your son Dan. <laughs> sure uh, <laughs> um 
But yeah, you know, he he's he was very he seemed like a very kind person in his personal dealings. He might be a scumbag, I don't know about it, but he always seemed very kind. And I I, <clears throat> I think what bothers me so much about this is that DC has not released any statement thanking him for his nearly two decades of work there. It's and, weird. <laughs> and you know, it just seems like he's a guy who unless your name is Rob Liefeld, I haven't seen anybody really celebrating this on the professional side. Fans, but all the mm-hmm. all the pros have seemed like they're, you know, bummed by the way this went down. So I feel bad for him, like as a human. Rob being. Liefeld is the only one. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you did. Well, it it probably I would think like is scary to a lot of people, regardless of you know how they felt about Dio. There, I I kind of feel like there's maybe a bit of solidarity here because it sets a precedent. Yes. Uh, that's not great. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say, I wanted to say two things about sort of the the structure of DC Comics. What I gathered from when Dadia was hired, when he was hired, I was not as plugged into the matrix of DC that I am now. But it seemed like he was hired because he was an outsider, and they wanted an outsider's perspective on things. And I think that that is where a lot of the heat for him came from, is that people didn't like this outsider coming in to their DC Comics. You know, he he essentially usurped people like uh, Paul Levitz, Len Wein, from these higher editorial positions. And I think people looked at him as, you know, he's not a comics lifer. What the fuck does he get to do this for? And I understand that that is not a... Um, that is not a defensible position for the public to take to be mad at somebody just because they didn't grow up in something. But I definitely understand the feeling of him being on the outside of this. That Man, said, next thing you know, Brian's going to be defending Trump. Oh, fuck off. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but but again, like, I, I feel like now when we think of Dio, Zach, you said he loved the comics. I, I think we've seen that he wasn't as much of the outsider as maybe we thought he was when he first came in. No, he he maybe loved him a little too much sometimes, really. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and, and so I I feel like a big a big important part of this conversation is is like did the Dio do what he was hired to do, and what he was hired to do was probably quite different than what we wished he would have done. And I think at almost every turn, DiDio tried to do interesting, unconventional things. And I think that's what he was hired to do. And so when we look back on his tenure, I think it is important that we discuss if he was successful at what his job was supposed to be. Do you guys think he was successful from that perspective? I mean, most of the time, yes. I think, like, as I was alluding to earlier, the DC Comics job is just, for whatever reason, even though they have Batman and Wonder Woman and Superman, a harder job than the Marvel one. Marvel, for some reason, is just always going to get that top-of-the-line market share. And DC, you know, with with the exception of those couple New 52 years... Uh, in the in the modern era is just going to be second fiddle always. And I think like if his job was to if his his job for all intents and purposes was to 
keep the market share above a certain line, I think. I don't think he had to beat Marvel. I, I honestly don't think that that uh, is sustainable at this point. Um, but I think he had to keep it above a certain line. And and all these different things that he did, he was constantly trying different things to keep it afloat, to keep it above you know, 25% market share, whatever it is. And most of the time he did. And I think like eventually it was going to catch up to him. And, you know, whether there's more behind the scenes that we don't know or whatever, I think we, you know, in the last year or two, we've talked about how sales after Rebirth started dwindling again on books like Batman and other things and, and how their market share was dipping. I think I, there was an episode like sometime in the last year or two where I mentioned the market share dipping to like a, uh, a all time low or something since the new 52 for them. And I, at the time I kind of said, oh, this might be the writing on the wall for Dio. Um, and I, I think he lasted a little longer than that, but I, I, I just think eventually this job is going to catch up to, and I, I don't think it's ever going to change in that way. I don't think, I think comics as a medium, just where they are right now, DC's second fiddle, and they have to stay above a certain line or else something has to give, you know? See, I, there are two things I want to respond to that with. One is that, I mean, DC was number one not that long before the New 52. Were they? Like the early two thousands belonged to DC. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't... Like you know, <clears throat> that's longer ago than you think, though. I mean, that's. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I feel like there was also a lot of time where, if even though Marvel was doing better market share wise, I mean, when I got back into comics hardcore in like oh eight or oh nine, I remember multiple people telling me. That even though Marvel sells more, the industry consensus is that DC makes better comics. Yeah, but Warner doesn't, you know, AT&T, Warner Brothers, they don't yes, care about absolutely. that. But what I'm saying is I don't think that it's been – the way you're categorizing it is that under DiDio's entire tenure, Marvel was clearly kicking their ass. And I don't think that's no, necessarily just No, just, mo just most of it. <laughs> okay. Like since he, since he became co-publisher in 2010 – he got he got them past Marvel for a couple of years with the new fifty two mm -hmm. and then it's kind of dwindled ever since. And maybe I'm maybe I'm being overly influenced by reading like the bleeding cool stuff, how they track sales and market share every month. Um, but you know, there there have been rumblings for a while that that DC needs to hit some certain line and and they were getting close to not doing it, and then for a couple months they didn't make it. Yeah. And it, it it's funny. I I'm on Comic Con right now, just checking what what Brian was saying. Uh, not not because I didn't believe him, but just wanted to like see where the numbers were. And it it actually like DC was ahead of Marvel until 2002, mm -hmm. which is where the big swing happened. Um, they were they were like neck and neck. It looked like for like a few years, DC was in like they were both in the low 30s, but DC was always up by like one or two percentage points. And then it swung hard in 2002 
when Ultimates came out and you kind of got closer to that, like Marvel at the 40%, DC at the 30% mark yeah. that we've and, kind of become accustomed to. And then the reason why I say that I don't think that's ever going to change is because Marvel is just such a juggernaut because of the movies and TV on, on a level that DC probably will never catch now. Like it's just, it's, it's just never going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're definitely right. Although I do think that there is, and I've been saying this for almost a decade now, but I feel like there is an expiration point on the MCU. Uh-huh. And when that happens, DC has to be ready to capitalize. But look, I mean... Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to because well, people I don't are going to so be either. sick of those movies too, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, what's the shame of this is that Birds of Prey is a really fun DC movie. And it didn't do well at the box office. And I don't, I, I can't point to any reason why that film shouldn't have done well, other than people just aren't that interested in it. And that's, I, yeah. that's a real bummer. And, and good luck finding any insight on that online, because if you try to look up stuff like that, speculation or whatever, it's just a bunch of perverts who don't even enjoy the movies who are who are like trying to come up with these insane reasons why you know D- Disney or Marvel is so much better at <laughs> Warner's than this or whatever it is a mess if people who are into like the box office receipts of superhero movies are some of the biggest perverts you can find online <laughs> <laughs> saying it right now but the other thing i wanted to talk about and i feel like no one is talking about this and i think it's really important so when Dio and Lee were named co-publishers, there was never any breakdown of here is what Lee's responsibilities are, here are what Dio's responsibilities are. I've I've seen some people talking about that. People have presumed that, but I don't think there was ever like a DC memo saying Dan Dio will be handling X Y Z, Jim Lee will be handling X Y Z. Am I wrong? No, about but I. No, you're not wrong, but I feel like that kind of came out in the way that they, you know, the roles that they took in, like, press situations and in panels and things. Like, Dio was always the face. He was always the, like, the guy who seemed to be kind of spearheading ideas and getting really excited about things. And Lee always kind of took more of a, like, behind-the-scenes I I, <laughs> I honestly, like, cannot – I don't know if I can ever remember a time in the past, like, 10 years where I read or, or saw an interview where Lee talked about, you know, a s- stories or the, or the state of the line. Well, maybe, okay. maybe in, like, the lead-up to New 52. Sure. But here's my point. I think a lot of the things that we pin on Dio – we have to be pinning on Dio and Lee, mm-hmm. but we never, ever do. No. I and, mean, I, I – yeah. And, in and my you know, mind, I do. Well, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, but, but almost but like, more like by association, right? Well, here's the thing, right? So – I don't think Lee has great taste either. No, neither yeah. do I. But, you know – Well, true. So I, I think that for for a lot of people, whether it's like a business relationship – or whether it's your marriage or your family relationship, there's somebody who steps up as the spokesperson, right? 
Like, there are people who are just more comfortable being in the spotlight of, like, of anything. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> I find that at family parties, when it's time to, like, clink glasses and raise a toast, Aaron always looks to me and is like, you ready to do this? Because I don't shut the fuck up. And so, you know, I tend to, you know, I, again, the Dio and I are both loudmouth East Coast Italians, so I get it. But, like, I just think that in one sense, like, Maybe Didio was just more comfortable in that role. And if Lee was behind the scenes with stuff, so much of the stuff we shit on Didio for is stuff that happened behind the scenes. I think there are justifiable reasons to shit on Didio, but I think that all of us, and I'm putting myself in this, we just tend to blanket all the problems with DC on Didio. Because he's the face, yeah. Because he's the face. And I really wonder why Jim Lee's job is safe right now, unless the Dio fucked something up really bad and we don't know about it. I but, think it's because Jim Lee is Jim Lee. Like, for some reason, it's still news when he comes and draws three pages of something, you know? Yeah. Well, I also think that it is maybe just because, like, the Dio is more vocal. Like, I... I get the impression that because he won't shut up about things and does like press really hard for things that he maybe rubbed certain people the wrong way. Whereas Jim Lee is, you get the impression that he's much quieter. He maybe is more go with the flow of things. Um, That's just my impression, but he doesn't seem to carry as high a profile. So Maybe he has not made anyone mad. I mean, part of this is I wonder how much of Lee's day-to-day work, especially like in the New 52 era, how much of his actual day was spent behind a drawing desk? You know, he was drawing. He was <laughs> technically he had he had art <clears throat> jobs in the New Fifty Two, right? And yeah. so yeah. He, he's spending eight hours a day drawing Justice League. The deal could be doing interviews during that time. Right. Or running interference from the time. Even if the Dio and Lee met every morning and the two of them decided, here are the things we're going to do today, the Dio was probably the guy putting those things into practice while Lee was drawing. And I don't mean to I don't I don't mean to disparage Lee by saying that, but I just think that's a reality of their jobs, probably. No, I agree. Um Um I wanna know how Bob Harris still has a job there. Well I mean everything I, I Go ahead. Sorry. Everything I know about Bob Harris uh, from his time at Marvel and like things that have been said and also just the books that are were put out and then like the books in the New 52 and beyond that you can point to that have like the same elements. The Harris the stank same... all over them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it is all the worst stuff of their respective eras. So... I bet if he had kept that CBR column going, he probably wouldn't have, would have been fired a lot sooner. Bobby and Bob? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That was the I worst swear, column. I swear, if he's the next publisher, I'm... Well, so my theory on why Bob Harris still has a job is, I think, I think it's too Because he stabbed a deal in the back? <laughs> well, maybe. And, no, I, I think, first of all, his job is even more thankless than DiDio's job. I think his job is essentially to make sure that all the books are coming out on time and are working together. 
And that's that's a lot of headache. So I don't know how many people want his job. But also, I think if you look at it, you know, yes, some DC books have been delayed. But really, when the New 52 launched and they said no more late books, they kind of still stick to that. Very few things are as delayed at DC as they are at Marvel or Image or Dark Horse. Yeah. And maybe Harris is good at the sort of taskmaster job. Again, his taste is shit, but what, maybe he's good at the actual job. Yeah, when did Harris come on? Was uh, it? It, might it was have, right before the New 52, right? I think it was when they became co-publishers. Okay, so that was 2000. 2010, 2010, I think, yeah. 10? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that That checks out because the New 52 ran like clockwork yeah, for the so, most sub- part. September 27th, and, 2010, my third wedding anniversary. Yeah. And then, you know, before the New 52, DC was, like, really kind of plagued with delays all the time, Um, it seems like. I mean, we're kind of there again now, and it's the same culprits. You know, it's like Jeff Johns again. Um, Morrison to a degree, although he's only he only has one book right now. So and it had a scheduled break. Um, but you might be onto something there. Yeah, so I think that that might be part of it. And the reason I wanted to bring up Lee and all this, I'm not trying to shit on Jim Lee, who again has been very nice to me in my limited interactions with him. I I just feel like. The Dio was the lightning rod, and and part of that I'm sure was his choice. You know, I think a good manager, whether in sports or business or whatever, is a lightning rod for their team. You you take the heat when there's heat to be taken, in protecting the rest of the folks around you. And I <laughs> think that he was very adept at doing that. But I think that it's shocking that the Dio and Lee were supposedly running the ship together. And Dio was, was, you know, knocked down from co-publisher earlier this year. Or rather, I'm sorry, Lee became CCO and co-publisher earlier this year. And now he's gone. And now Dio's gone and Lee is still in place. That's It's very odd to me. Yeah. Well, I think, like, you, you know, you said you don't want to shit on Lee. And I think that's kind of, like, the point is, like, nobody can really shit on Jim Lee. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this. I think that Lee's contributions to the New 52 are worse than DiDio's. Like, Lee was the visual aesthetic of the New 52, and when you read those books, that's the most glaring part of it. Mm. Um, I, I would maybe push back on that because some of those stories were really, really bad. But, <laughs> but you, I mean, yeah, the 90s aesthetic was bad in general or as the story was more highs and lows yeah i really think that lee had as much negative influence over the new 52 as the deal if not more and i think a lot i think again like there's probably a connection with him and bob harris and many many of the people that they (laughs) work with and hire you know, going back to Marvel. I mean, and yeah, Scott so. Lipdell could be as much of a Jim Lee thing uh, yeah. as Bob Harris just because of the like X Men connections. You know, like Jim Lee worked on those books with Scott Lipdell. Yeah. 
Scott Liddell did Wildstorm stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. That's actually maybe more likely. Yeah. I, yeah. Yep. Now, I know that we have no inside information. Everything we say is going to be pure speculation. But do you guys have a sense for what kind of person or what person will be in charge of DC when this all shakes out? The, the, the most uh, cursed and hellish thought I had was that it would be one of the CW TV guys to come in and run the comics. <laughs> It'll um, be Berlanti for sure. I was, yeah. yeah, Berlanti or you know whoever, but um, no, I don't. I don't think that that's really going to happen. But you know, th- there are rumors that they want more like uh, television style storytelling. Again, this all comes from you know cursed old Uncle Rich, uh, who we like to reference on this show, um, tongue in cheek wise. Um, but you know, if if that's who they're looking for, then there's like. You know, one of those guys from the CW, from just those wretched shows, <laughs> and uh, or there's, or there's like a Jeff Loeb <laughs> type. But I feel like he, I feel like that's almost too much of a comic name. You know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it's not. You know, people are suggesting crazy things like Jeff Johns or Scott, or even Scott Snyder. Like I don't think it's going to be a comic guy necessarily. Um. So I would be really surprised if it was, yeah. Yeah. I'd be surprised if it were a former writer, big name writer like that. You know, maybe somebody who's done a comic here and there I could see, but like I don't think it's going to be one of the big guns. I don't think it's going to be uh Tom King. Tom King or Mark Wade or you know. Oh, definitely not Mark Wade. Mark Wade just got named like he's in charge of Humanoids, right? He would yeah, drop humanoids like a bad habit. If DC I don't know if he would. I feel I... like he still has a lot of bad blood. Dude's Twitter avatar is still Superman, I think. Well, like, that's you know, true. <laughs> I'm not even joking with Maybe. it. You know. No, I know, I know. That's, there's so much psychology there. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that a lot of the people I'm going to mention now have recently gotten other jobs in lesser comic companies, including Mark Wade. But I wouldn't be surprised if they if if it's a guy or woman. Well, I don't I don't mean guy oh. gendered wise. I mean, if, if it's a person who is who has comic ties, I think it's more likely to be your Bill Jemus type guys, people who had run companies in the past. Stepping in for this, I don't think they're gonna fuck around with it'll, a new guy. It'll be that guy from my fanboy who like left to go to Marvel and then went to Image oh, and. No. Uh, <laughs> God. No, I will not speak his <laughs> cursed name on this podcast. He he is a tool who has been me tooed. So uh, good riddance. Uh, so that's why uh, he's perfect for this job. That's true. <laughs> Shit, you're right. Uh, um, I can think of three names. Go for it. Vince Strasky, <clears throat> Zach Wilkerson, and Brian Salvatore. <laughs> Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth, my friend. That's been while you were kissing me. That's right. The DC3 saves DC. And we're happy to announce that after this hour-long lead-up, we have been offered the position, <laughs> and we'll be taking it. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that they're all going to pay us one just to Dio's old salary, 
Yes. And we have we have to come to work together on one another's shoulders wearing a giant trench coat. And, mm-hmm. and, and we have to ref- we have to do the Didio impression the whole time. Yeah, we're gonna for continuity's sake. You know, <laughs> we were told this would make you comfortable. That's Bernie. That's more Bernie. But all of these are Bernie. We we know that. Look, look. <laughs> and I'm we have to constantly carry. A, <laughs> we have to, we have to carry a cigar in our mouth, and yeah. that falls out anytime anyone pitches us anything. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it sets the coat on fire, and then it reveals a three men uh, in a coat. AT and T is not going to like this. Yeah, and, and so that brings me to where where I want to bring the conversation before we potentially wrap this part of our show up, which is there has been a fair amount of. Uh, worry and speculation that this move means the end of DC Comics as we know it. Whether that means that they will, you know, shutter their comic publishing line, whether it means that they will be licensing these characters out to other publishers the way that, you know, folks like Hasbro do for Transformers comics or Nickelodeon does for uh, Ninja Turtles comics, you know, um, or just, you know, a massive restructuring of what monthly DC comics looked like. And I think it's a bit premature to be too worried about that, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. And I want to know what you guys think about that idea of of maybe this signaling the end of DC as we know it. Zach, go off. I mean, like I can definitely see a scenario where 5G starts in November, December, runs through 2021, underperforms, and then like DC just pairs down the line to maybe just like the black label books or even like converts those to like graphic novels or something. And then maybe farms out the rest to some kind of like IDW style Marvel adventures thing. We've talked a little bit about that. I I can see that scenario playing out. Like, yeah, that like makes a lot of sense to me, but also I kind of think that like, it's natural to just kind of like make this a crisis moment. No, like DC pun intended and just think like, Oh, this is the end of everything when like more than likely, like this is a big machine that can just keep, that can keep going if they want it to. I don't know. I I'm kind of torn on it. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm leaning towards what you're saying, Zach. I think I think the likeliest outcome, I think the least likely outcome is that, DC completely closes up shop and there's no more DC comics. I think that that's highly unlikely, maybe not impossible, but you know, it's still a profitable company, even though it's maybe not where they want it. Um, I think that, uh, farming that stuff out to, to IDW or somebody, you're just not going to get, at, at that point, then is it worth it? You know, because I don't think you're going to get as much return as you would just doing it yourself. 
keeping the IP in your own house and, and um, you know, doing exactly what you want with it. Um, I, I, I think I could easily see, and, and this is just based on, remember back more than a year ago, I whenever they moved to Burbank, mm-hmm. There was some stuff about there was some uh, editorial changes, and then shortly thereafter there were some layoffs, I think. And there was, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said we're gonna try to pare the line down. From they they had been putting out like seventy books a month or something. We're gonna try to get that down to like fifty or something. I remember somebody saying this. I wish I could. I should have looked it up before the show, but they were intently going to pare the line down i can see them doing that even more mm-hmm. um sticking with kind of a black label prestige format where you know some of these books uh are, are like more expensive your five six seven dollar books and then just having a few uh a few other regular monthly books that are maybe in the 399 area but not as many as they're putting out right now and just a more tightly like if the intent is to bring in uh you know tv and animation style storytelling i can totally see them just having a tight group of like you know 10 writers or something just very tightly working on a small group of books and having it be a more boutique thing than a than a than a a Constant churn, constant over flooding of the shelves type deal. Here, here's uh, my pitch. Yeah, you you let you you get the TV guys to come in and do this black label line of the you know oversized prestige books, and then you let Bendis and friends have this kind of like you know maybe line of fifteen to twenty books that is like the DC universe. Mm. And it's just like very tightly, very tightly run, you know? Yeah. Very continuity heavy. And that's where you get your big events and stuff to cater to those people. But it's just smaller. I want to come, I want to come back to Valiant and Marvel. Yeah, there you go. That's a good. Yeah, or like what Dynamite puts out. I mean, Valiant um, is really small. Valiant. I know really that's that's why I said between them. Yeah, like the average. Um, Brian, I want you to give your opinion on it, but then I want to circle back to Bendis when we're done with this part. So, Brian, what do you see for the? I don't know. Um, I, I have a couple of I, I think somewhat contradictory thoughts here. On one hand, I think, you know, if we're trying to be students of history here, there was a time when the idea of comics without Fawcett Comics producing a comic every month was like an unthinkable thought, right? There are companies that were hugely successful companies that no longer exist and no longer exist so far along ago that you can, you almost can't find active comics readers who bought new Fawcett comics, right? Uh, Charlton was a huge company. There were lots of these companies that were that were major players that eventually got subsumed by DC and Marvel. And 
So whenever I whenever I think in my head like, oh, there's no way they can actually close DC, I tend to think that you know, well, maybe this is just my arrogance and my ignorance and my recency bias showing. So I think that there is a better chance of them just shuttering DC than I want to admit. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily um, the the truth or the end-all, be-all, whatever. I just, I, I think that we have to be more ready for that to be a reality than maybe we we are talking about right now. But what I think is actually going to happen is I think they're going to try and bring in somebody who is as close to a um, a taskmaster as possible. Somebody, who, uh, not the Marvel character, um, but, you know, just somebody whose job it is to make sure that whatever AT&T's vision is for DC that that vision gets hit every month. And I, I, I think that even worse than DiDio's job is, uh, is this, is this new person's job because they're going to be, they're going to be the target for everything that goes wrong with DC for the next few years. Um, and I think that the person after this person is probably going to be relatively well suited for success. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this person is a non-comics person who comes in with the the sort of plan of all right, we're going to tighten our belts, we're going to limit the line, we're going to get this done and they're going to be around for a year or two and then they're going to hire you know maybe when things have turned around a bit the, then they'll hire the Scott Snyder, the Mark Wade, the Grant Morrison, the whoever, to be the creative director of DC. Um, but I think there's going to be a real period of a non-comics person running the show for a while. And that's a real bummer. Because that's grim. I, but, but I think that's... I mean, do, does that sound wrong to you guys? No. No. Yeah, I... I think you're right that, you know, the the possibility of them just calling it quits and being done with it is more likely than we probably would would give credit to just because of recency bias and everything. Like you said, I I don't know. DC DC and Warner Brothers are just in such a weird place. It's like they can't do anything right. And it doesn't seem like there's a path for them to do anything right really because of kind of the way things are shifting. You know, I'm really kind of like wondering what this next like phase of the MCU is going to look like, or if it's even going to do well. Um, I really wouldn't be surprised if it is like the, the wind is out of those sails considerably. And if that's the case, then like that makes it even harder for, for Warner brothers to, you know, play in that space unless this like, you know, the Robert Pattinson Batman is this kind of like, you know, auteur, like mind blowing masterpiece. <laughs> uh, like the Joker. Like the dang Joker. <laughs> no, no, yes, exactly like that. Um, but, but because, like, especially like Marvel has done so well because they will take chances and like Warner Brothers in DC are so reticent to take any chances. Um, 
Well, here's here's a question, Zach. I don't mean to argue. I want to I want to ask you this question in particular. Do you think that there's any room in the AT and T slash Warner Brothers mindset to be okay with being number two? I mean, I feel like they would have have they they feel like they should already like have adjusted to that at this point. It's it's kind of a it has been the status quo for so long. Because I mean, not to not to shit on Pepsi here, but everyone knows that Coca Cola is the number one like soda in the country, and Pepsi is number mm-hmm. two. But I don't think anybody is walking around the halls of Pepsi being like. If we don't increase numbers by 8%, we're going to fucking be shut down. Because there's plenty of space in the market for both Coke and Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And I feel yeah. like DC and Marvel can be Coke and Pepsi. And yeah. I don't see why there's this obsession with having to necessarily beat the other. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. I mean, like, I, I, I don't really understand disney and i even less so understand at&t as like a you know an entity i have no idea what i can at least like fathom like the execs at disney kind of having an idea and an understanding of what marvel is and what they can do with it like vaguely but like i can't even imagine some like schmuck at AT at&t even thinking about DC comics, you know, like the AT&T is Don, AT&T is Don Draper and, and Ginsburg is everything. That's not Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to say AT&T is Don Draper and DC comics is tomorrow. Never knows. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Turn on your um, mind, relax, and flow downstream. Yes. Um, but and even if even if DC is obsessed with beating Marvel, I don't think not beating Marvel is reason to not exist. I guess that's what I was trying to say more than anything else. That uh, if if the only reason that AT and T is keeping DC around is to try to beat Marvel, it's probably never going to happen in that well, way. I don't. I don't think that like. I think there is like a rationale that I mean really the only reason I think that Marvel keeps Marvel comics around are are because they do kind of use the comics as a idea factory for the the direction of the movies and the TV shows whereas DC does not do that at all. Um I mean I would argue that the biggest It's the reverse I think. No, I mean I would argue that you know the biggest the biggest comics events on TV this year have been crisis are based of... are based on comics from twenty or thirty years ago. But but they're still there. Yeah, but they're not like Marvel is like making things based on comics that have come out in the last ten years or in the last five years. Like DC doesn't do that and isn't really interested in doing that. I, I would argue that Marvel's doing less of that than. I would argue that they're not. They're doing a Miss Marvel show. They're doing a show based on Tom King's vision. They're doing the Jason Aaron, Jane Foster Thor. They're doing like all these are all things that have happened in the last okay. five years. Let me rephrase that. I think that Marvel <laughs> takes the kernel of an idea, 
Like, I don't think that WandaVision is actually based on Tom King's vision. I think somebody no, saw the it, trade it, I, dress of the vision and decided to make a show sure, out of it. But I think, like, but, like, that they are, I mean, the kernel of the ideas there, like, there's a chance that these things would not have happened if those comics did not exist to spark the idea. Sure, sure. Like, there's a good chance that those projects maybe would not have gotten off the ground. And that's, like, what I think is... I think that's what Disney finds valuable about Marvel publishing. Whereas I don't know if DC finds anything of value or AT&T finds anything of value in DC publishing other than just perpetuating their IP. I mean, it really is a sad state of affairs and look, comics have never, even when comics are quote mainstream, the weekly grind of comics have never been mainstream, right? Um, yeah. I think it's pretty sad, though, that this entire medium, in the eyes of corporate America, exists to make things out of it rather than it being its own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, like, it's even the – even that's even the case in, like, creator-owned yeah. comics. You know, they're, they are just a – IP a pitch factory. factory for for TV and movies. Ugh, I hate it. Yeah. This, this turned into as much as of a bummer as I thought it might. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm still excited for 5G, though. I, w- I, I wish Didio was there at the helm, but I'm still excited for it. And I think that there's also a case to be made, and this was brought up in the Multiversity Slack today, that maybe this, maybe it was time for for Didio to move on anyway, mm-hmm. but not like this. Yeah. Agreed. Un- unless he really, like I said, we don't know the details. He could have, he could have done, he could have done something terrible that we don't know about, and that's why he was fired. You know, we just don't. I know. somehow doubt it, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I doubt it too. Um, who, who, who was it? I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to talk about the situation at all, but who, who was it? Who finally got their comeuppance here? Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? The, no, the one that did Dio wronged so wrongly. Uh, I don't know what you're, what are you talking about? Oh, oh never mind. You guys can edit this part out. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> Let, We're let, not gonna. Let me just so. ask you. I'm gonna ask you a very oblique question about this, okay? Yeah. Um, does... Oh. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you got it. Involve... I can't remember who it was. Uh, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. that person finally got their comeuppance, and and. I don't think that person's worked in a, in a in a while though. <laughs> right, Vince? Am I, am I thinking the right person? Uh, well, yeah, I think so, but <laughs> this our listeners are so fucking mad at us right now because we're just speaking in code and we don't even know if we're speaking the same code. Uh, uh, at goodbye to a shoe, if you have any questions about what we're talking. About. <laughs> uh, Borat voice. That's all I'll say. Um, okay, let's. <laughs> You just got that, Vince? <laughs> I got that. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> so listen to this. Let's let let's pour one out for our boy Danny D, and uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back. We have three books to talk about this week, so stay tuned for that. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we're back to talk about Amethyst Number 1, written and illustrated by Amy Reader. Uh, Vince, I want to start with you on this because you've been really hyped about this series. Not that we all haven't been, but you've been like particularly hyped about this series since it was announced. And uh, so I want to hear what you think of this first issue. Uh, well, I'm a big Amy Reader fan, so um, so that that's why I was so hyped. Um, I just love her art. It's kind of in my predictable wheelhouse for what I like in art. I, I it's almost like a Joel Jones situation. Um, I just like how angular everything is, and I think that that's that's perfect for Amethyst, and I think that that really came through in this first issue. Um, I think her art nails the look of the Amethyst characters and Gemworld. Uh, if you go back and read the old stuff from the 80s, uh, the look is pretty spot on, of course, with like modern artistic techniques and coloring. Um it looks a little different, but you know, like as far as the design is concerned, it, she slots right in there. And I think this book is just great to look at the plot. The plot was, you know, nothing special at all. Very, very slight in fact, but I think that's just what Amethyst is really like, even like in the eighties, the, the property was not much more than like, Hey, there's all these gem kingdoms. And, uh, and the opal guy is bad and everybody else is very various shades of good and they need to stop him or whatever. You know, it's not very much more complicated than that. And so for what it is, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I don't think it's like certainly it's not essential uh, reading. I think it's it's just, uh, you know, slight, colorful, fun fantasy but if you're a fan of Amy Reader in any way, then I think it 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 goes into that must read territory. But you know, um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's very very slight though. I mean, wouldn't you agree? There's there's not much to the story here. Yes, I would agree with that. I I have more to say about this, but I want to hear what Zach has to say first. Yeah, no, I <clears throat> I agree with that completely. Like, it's a gorgeous book, but it it's kind of, it's kind of a snooze to get through just because it's very aside from like just being really visually interesting like the sequences are really like fun and dynamic like i love the bit where she like first teleports into gem world and she's like bouncing on these crystal platforms and getting to like her her castle or whatever it all looks it, it's so fun and looks so good but it's just very formulaic and kind of not 
you can you can already kind of like start to guess where the story's going and it's not it's not leading anywhere that seems super interesting um so yeah in that in that regard i was a, a little bit disappointed um yeah it's starting from a weird position where like uh gem world is kind of in ruins and it's almost as if like people aren't recognizing her and she can't find her own the people from her own kingdom and like the other the people in the other kingdoms aren't reacting to her in the way that she expects and so I think unfor- I, that's obviously a plot device that'll get worked out as the series goes on. And I think the story could certainly get more interesting. But starting off from that platform, you, you do lose some of the color that the, that the other characters provide, I think. And by the end of the issue that, uh, you know, she meets a character who seems like they're going to be entertaining. Um, but, you know, she's... She, from page one, she's missing intentionally some of the elements that make the Amethyst books a colorful and interesting place to spend time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Brian? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was I had actually uh, interviewed Amy Reader a few weeks ago about this book. And one of the things that she said was that she felt that Rocket Girl which was her last major book, was so um, so sort of uh, rooted in science and hard angles and all of that that she wanted to do a book where there weren't as many rules to the visuals of it. And I think you really see that when you read this. You really see her just having fun with doing... Um, just doing, you know, sort of what she wants to do and not being so worried about doing everything like in such a clean, neat way. Um, so that's good. I, I think that's a nice thing to have on the book. I think it's fun to see a creator who's doing what they want to do. And so, that's Oh cool. yeah. Um, I also think one of the questions I asked her was if for her, the plot came first or the world came first. And she said that this was very much for her about reestablishing gem world as a place and that by the end of the series, we'll have more of a sense of who Amethyst is within Gemworld. And I think knowing that going in made the issue a little bit of a better read for me. Because mm-hmm. I think it does spend more time making Gemworld interesting versus making Amethyst interesting. Yes, no, maybe so? Uh, yeah, but I think... Yeah. Uh, I, I think yes. But I also think like you're not even getting to the interesting stuff about Gemworld yet because it's kind of a, a decimated place right now. Sure, sure. And that's totally that is totally a valid like plot choice. Um, and the sort of like the sort of rebuilding of it or the building up of it is going to be the the thing that 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 fills it out and colors it. Um, it's just that that aspect of it left me a little cold. I, but I thought looking at each page, like every page looks just gorgeous. So it was not at all difficult to get through for me because um, I just love the way her art looks. And I love She's clearly having fun with it. Um, all the way up to the last page with, with uh, Opal. That is such a fun page with all the little Opal drones. Yeah. 
uh, scattered around. Like th- this book is incredible to look at. I think um, I'm just looking. I'm looking forward to. <laughs> it's to me. It's the it's the modern comics problem of. I can just already see the story is a little decompressed. Yes. Mm, yeah. And that's also that's somewhat in line with how Bendis does comics, and this is a Wonder Comics imprint book. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I don't think that's too much of a surprise, unfortunately. No. I wish I had more to say about this book. That's that's my biggest critique of it is that I read it and I was like, oh, okay, and then I stopped thinking about it instantly. Yeah. <laughs> how how many issues is this going to be? Six. I believe it's six. Yes. Okay. That that checks out. I think I'm. Yeah. I hate I to think, say this, uh, but at least it's not twelve. That's what I was. Go- <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but yeah. Well, and that's not. That's just. That's just because we know how those go. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter how good the creative we teams don't are. Read them. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Man. That's it's the Martian Manhunter problem. Like that mm-hmm. book that book is so good, but like all over it you can see why that story doesn't need to be twelve issue. You can you can do a twelve issue Martian Manhunter comic, but that's one story being stretched to twelve issues. You know what I mean? God, that is the modern comics problem to me that I will just bitch about until the end of time, I think. So I just I- Go ahead. Sorry, finish up. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like if, if writers are given s- six issues, they're like, all right, I can make a story last six issues. If writers are given 12 issues, they can say, all right, I can make one story last 12 issues. You know? So as you guys know, I'm, I'm doing a big JSA read, and I just finished up uh, the first two arcs of JSA. And the first arc written by James Robinson is not as good as the arc written by Jeff Johns. But there's an issue where the team has to split into three and they have to go to three different parts of the world and all accomplish something. And I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, well, this is where the rest of the arc is going to go now. There's going to be an issue for each of these teams. And all of it was wrapped up in one issue. And I wanted to do cartwheels because I was just like, oh, my God, this is this is a beautiful thing. They told a story in one issue. Whoa. Well, you know. <laughs> and it's sad that we have to feel that way now, but that is that is how comics are right now. You're right, Vince. Yeah. Yep. Um, I do want to shout out the colors, which I I think were just done by Amy Reader herself. She's coloring the first two issues. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they just they look really great too. They just totally capture Gem World in the way that you, the way that you're mind imagines it because if you go back and read those earlier comics the co- obviously the coloring technology was lesser and um, D, we don't have the technology yet exactly yeah get the scientists working on the comics coloring technology immediately dude the red phone's flashing um <laughs> uh yeah uh no the, the colors really pop on this um uh, of course it's mostly purple um but you know, it's very bright and colorful throughout. Um, and I love some of the word art is colored in different colors. And yes. I think that that stuff really pops too. Um, just a great looking book all, all, all around. And I hope the story picks up a bit. I'm, I'm sure it probably will. 
Yeah. Anything else to say? Mm-mm. Okay. Let's get to Leviathan Dawn, number one, written by Brian Bendis, illustrated by Alex Maliev. One of the major criticisms that we, and I think others, had with Event Leviathan was that it felt incredibly decompressed and that each issue seemed to take entirely too long to get to the point, and certain issues had no point at all to it. Zach, did Leviathan Dawn number one correct any of those issues? Yes and no. Go on. I think the only thing that this issue does, I think that's maybe a value is set up checkmate. Um, otherwise, it's kind of a holding pattern with the Leviathan stuff. I well, okay, I guess that's not entirely true because there is like a status quo shift. Um, Bendis is aping the Dawn of X books um, because Leviathan <laughs> gets its own gets its own island nation now. Um, I, I guess like th- those are like the two big things in this book: the the formation of Checkmate and Leviathan becomes a nation, and it's told over what is like close to two issues worth of pages like two normal size issues so that that's all you need to know i think yeah i do love that markovia is just the scumbaggiest nation in dc comics whenever <laughs> anything bad happens in dc it happens in markovia zach would you say that uh bendis's leviathan stuff is the volcano to uh Jonathan Hickman's Dante's Peak, or is that, or is it, or is Dante's Peak uh, worse than Volcano? I can't remember what the. I've never seen either, so I can't speak. <laughs> okay, let's let's oh, rephrase God, this. Is is Bendis's Event Leviathan the um, uh, deep impact <laughs> to? No, I I, th- I think no, his, the Armageddon. To Ben to Hickman's Deep Impact because Deep Impact's better. I've, than... uh, I've never seen Deep Impact. Let's say let's say Event Leviathan is the inception to Hickman's Paprika. I don't get that reference. <sighs> we, we're not we're not connecting tonight. I get it. It was he good. Gets it. Explain it to me. It's anime. It, oh. Inception ripped off Paprika, okay. which was a. An anime film by Satoshi Kon. It's very good. Okay, I believe you. Um, uh, I will say one thing about this issue. I think this one issue, which was like thirty some pages long, contained as much story as the six issues of Leviathan. <laughs> that is definitely true. That is true. Yeah, um, you're right that it doesn't move the needle that much, but. Compared to that story, there was a lot going on. <laughs> no, will, you're will, not. You're not wrong. Yeah, I will also say that while most of the cast of this book was in was a part of the cast of Event Leviathan, I like this group of checkmate people. Like it's so at the end of the issue, it's it's Manhunter, Steve Trevor, Ollie, Lois, Talia. The question, we don't know which question yet, uh, Mr. Bones, or Director Bones, rather, and uh, the king, who looks... Well, what? 
don't we know that it's Vic Sage question? Maybe I don't. I mean, he was he was the one in the regular Leviathan books. No, so. they both were. Remember, because the one was the part of the other other two. Uh, is that right? Yeah, huh. I think I think they both were, or at least one was in action. If they weren't both in the Leviathan, they've been around. But this yes. one definitely seems more like Vic Sage. Okay, so Vic Sage, um, and 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 then the the king of Checkmate. Who um, we are given a name earlier, but we don't know if that's a real name or not, right? Yeah, and he um, he looks kind of like Kingsley like, Jacobs. You mean? Yes, yeah. He yeah. looks kind of like 1997 David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you guys know that in this like lineup for Checkmate, they had to put Lois and Talia's real names so that you would know who they were? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oh, but you don't have to do that with Steve Trevor, which I think is a little sexist because there were multiple times in the issue where Steve Trevor showed up and I was like, who is this? Yeah. Oh, is this is this still Steve Trevor? Definitely like the whole scene with Director Bones. I was like, who is this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they call him the colonel here should be enough. And the truth and the I guess the wild card is a little bit. Yeah, I guess you know, those are really like non. Yeah. But why not call Lois like the reporter? Then? Exactly. The reporter or like the heir for uh, Talia, like the heir to or Leviathan. So, yeah, or, or like the assassin or something, yeah, you know, yeah. like you could, I don't know. I just thought that was really funny. I do like how the questions is the question. And <laughs> yeah. Director Bones is just the bones. The bones. He's the bones of the operation. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a uh, it's a cool it's a cool team, um, yeah. and I'm really worried that it's not going to get it to do because it's this is all going to be cut short by 5G or something. Um, I I will also say that this issue has a fair amount of both good and bad Bendis in it. Like, yeah, I, I thought that the the director Bones <clears throat> scene was actually really funny. When he was like, uh, I'm awake. It's like, it's hard to tell. I get that a lot, actually. You know, stuff like that I thought was actually pretty, was actually, was, was good Bendis funny, you know? Um, yeah, that was, it, I agree. Yeah, but there's also good. a lot of just, like, bickering back, especially the scene with, with Trevor and Talia just felt mm-hmm. very, like, by the numbers Bendis dialogue. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't. Just... I don't know about you guys. Too. I I find Steve Trevor just kind of like genuinely unlikable in anything that he's in. <laughs> not the Wonder Woman movie. No, not the Wonder Woman movie because that that is very good. But like, uh, anytime he shows up in Wonder Woman or Justice League or anything, I'm just like, I ah, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, he's basically yeah. just a cop, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh well, yeah. Um. Yeah, what were you, you were gonna say something about Malieve's art? I was gonna say that Malieve's art is still new enough to DC to feel novel when it shows up, but he's still doing really good work. I just feel like you know, I'm still not used to seeing Malieve on DC stuff, so it's always a bit of a, uh, a bit of an enjoyable thing. Like, oh look, Alex Malieve is doing this. That's fun. Um, yeah, no, this I thought this was really good um, work on his part. Yeah. Do we think that do we think that Kingsley Jacobs is anybody? You know, it's funny that you said he looks like Bowie because I still think Mark Shaw looks like Bowie. So maybe it's uh, maybe they're all Bowie. 
They're just different versions of Bowie. Bowie, funny little in fat space. man. <laughs> we both we both went to different Bowie uh, parody songs. Parody songs, yeah. Uh, the the one the, the who I thought it was at first because he said I'm the he says I'm the king at first is I thought it would be King Faraday, and then it wasn't. Yeah, that was my thought too. Because wasn't he involved with Checkmate? He was in too? Checkmate. Yep, yep. Do you want to hear so, I mean, my off the uh, wall theory? It's Brian Michael Bendis. In no, Powerful. no, it's a character that we've only recently 50 seen. Fifty Sue. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually Father Time in the new body. No. Um, oh, hey, this is Faraday. It's Faraday. Yeah, yeah, because. There's a there's a entry on the DC wiki for Kingsley Faraday. Oh, but oh. sorry, what were you gonna say, Brian? I oh, well, well, fuck me, I guess. What I was gonna say, <laughs> but uh, no, I was gonna say that a character that has a checkmate past that we haven't seen a lot of recently, but we know is back, was Alan Scott. Oh, oh, that I would love for this to be a red herring and it to be Alan Scott. That would just be the oh That'd man, be wild butter me up but it is king faraday yeah. yeah what if it was daniel faraday zach <laughs> yeah that he actually he kind of favors it maybe it's just the hair um i can see it yeah. you perverts god you're sickos <laughs> because we like Did you hear that stuff. uh damon lindelof is uh spearheading 5g <laughs> <laughs> Hey Paul. That's why, he, that's why he couldn't do a second uh, season of. No, he's doing it, but it's going to be a comic. Oh, okay. Were you just going to do a David Letterman? <laughs> I was, yeah. Because <laughs> the way Zach what said do? it was acted. Well, did you hear? And so, I was like, hey Paul. Paul. <laughs> Paul, you hear about five G? Yeah. Yeah. Five G, <laughs> huh? Five G. Yeah, yeah, they fired the Dio, huh? And then, and then the the CBS orchestra would play "Glad All Over" by the Dave Clark Five. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we're back on our bullshit. All right, oh, um, man. our bullshit sucks. <laughs> speak for yourself. Um, I know this show was much better when it was Walt instead of me. <laughs> no, 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 no. No offense to Walt, but you know this. Is Although the Walt's invited back anytime he wants. Anytime. As is Alexander Jones, so you guys will hear the episode. They've already heard the episode by the time they hear this, but it's not been released yet. Alexander was a lot of fun on the show, too. So I can't believe you. you guys got Alex Jones on the show, finally. <laughs> hey, Just we, we were not allowed to make those jokes. Well, I was not. I told. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, that episode is not up yet, and I, even being a co-host, I'm not privy to it, so I can't. I'm sure it was delightful. I'll uh, listen to it when it Alexander comes Alexander was a ton of fun. Uh, thank thank you to Walt and Alexander for filling in for Zach. Yeah, thank you, Walt and Alexander, for filling in for me. Do um, you think Alexander is like, you know how like Earth 3 Lex is Alexander Luther and he's a good guy? You think it works like that? Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alexander. <laughs> I'm just trying to get off this topic, so sure. Sure, it's exactly how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. All right, Let, let's jump over to our final book of the week, which is uh, Year of the Villain, Hell Arisen, number three, written by James Tiny IV, illustrated by Steve Epting and Javi Fernandez. Um, I know what you guys are going to want to talk about in this book, so should we just get right to it? I don't know if you do. 
What do you want to talk about? What? What? Do you, what? Uh, how big of a Mansoor Mala fan I am, and he's in this. No. No. What? Giant Lex. Punchline. No. Wait. Been Nick, Batman Nick, yet. Nick yes, of course, Nick oh, oh, I do want to talk about that. But, but answer did, did uh, has Batman been in Batman yet? Have you guys talked about that yet? Punchline has about her. She has okay. shown up. We haven't talked about it. I don't think. No, we haven't. Okay. Did you? Okay, I didn't know if you guys talked about that. Um, now let's talk about Nick's, and then I have a funny uh, segment of Zach's problematic faves that I want to talk about in relation <laughs> to Punchline. Okay. So Nick shows up here, yeah, in some sort of uh, some sort of a back to tube, um, back to tank, just uh, you know chilling with with uh, the Batman who laughs, which you know, yeah, I know that this book and these two events that are dovetailing here have been frustrating at times for us. I, I do want to just shout out the fact that I love that Snyder and Tynion seem absolutely fearless about throwing any character into these books. And, like, there's no reason for Nyx to be here yet. And I'm sure there will it be some feels, reason. It but feels it just, like crisis. Yes, exactly. Um, but they're they're unafraid to introduce different characters. And so that's, that's kind of fun. Um, yeah. The Batman who laughs would never be able to catch Nick's. This is absurd. <laughs> right. This is totally <sighs> suspension of disbelief out the window. <laughs> Other than that double page spread, which made me kind of sit up in my seat. This all the characters in this book really feel like they're like looking at their watches being like, OK, we got to kill couple more months on this <laughs> you know like i mean i would say the only exception to that is the dang joker who basically acts as the as the voice of the dc reader saying yeah. to lex luthor like just just be lex luthor stop with this perpetuous shit yeah yeah I, I did like that line where he's like, we're not supposed to be on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I am the, I'm the Joker. I'm supposed to be taking on the Dark Knight detective. I'm not supposed to be on the moon. Yeah. I thought that was great. Um, and I, but I don't trust that that's a real, you know, I don't trust that they're going to make good on that idea. I feel like that's just the Joker trolling. And then I groaned at the last page. Where he's like, you thought you could uh, turn some heroes and win the day or whatever, but Lex is like, I'm betting on the villains. And it's just more villain versus villain bullshit. Yeah. Very predictable. I did like when Lex like showed up at the Hall of Justice in that like absolute unit Lex mech, like just, just look at that thing. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> Only, uh, <laughs> although it is kind of eclipsed by Black Manta's exact same thing of his costume. Maybe, yeah, yeah, it is. It kind of is. But in that, when you don't have the two there together for scale, you know, it looks it looks yeah. real good. 
I think. <laughs> 10 out of 10 costumes. They're good. And there's like leprosy Solomon Grundy there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't like that design. I don't like no, that at all. I don't like uh, that. I, I don't like any of these designs, actually, really. Um, was it Lobo no. Savage there? Vandal Savage Lobo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, Clarion like, looks fine, I think. Um, but yeah, I, although I do like Black Manta Mech. That's very cool. Who was the uh, the green and blue person? That's there? uh, that's Oracle. It's Oracle from Batgirl. Come on, man. What... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Cecil Castellucci. Um, yeah, and then Captain Cold looks like Captain Cold, but also Metron. Yeah, but grew that beard. He looks much older than he did. He's the techno. He's the techno Viking. <laughs> you yeah. You remember when he was stupid, sexy Captain Cold just like yeah. three years ago, and now yeah. he's <laughs> yeah. Now he's Grandpa. <laughs> he's down on his luck. Yeah. He was cucked by Commander it's a hard Cold. Hard life. It's a hard life. I know. He yeah yeah. Now Commander Cold is the stupid, sexy one. Um. So about Punchline, um, all I can think of when I hear Punchline is this really problematic anime uh, series <laughs> by the same name that I watched in like 2015 um, that I won't talk about uh, the premise on the show, but you guys should look it up. <laughs> all right, I'm going to do it on the show. It's called Punchline? Uh-huh. All right. All right. You guys just talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to read this. It's actually, I actually really liked it. <laughs> But it's very problematic. It's, it's really bad. I don't usually tell people about it. Oh, okay. It's a. Would you say it's a harem anime? Is that what I'm? Mm, no, not, not really. really. No. No, it's not. It's not. Okay. It's not really. Right. Um, I'm really good see, at them. When I hear punchline, I think of the pop punk emo band from the early two thousands. Ah, and when I hear punchline, I think of. Uh, all the hilarious Mitch Hedberg jokes I've enjoyed all uh, over the years. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, this book, uh, um, there's really not much to say about it. Yeah, no. I'm, I, I, I wonder how it's all going to wrap up. How are they going to wrap this all up? Well, the Legion of Doom is going to go through a door where all stories matter. Oh, wouldn't that be... That'd be just grand. Yeah. I, I do love... Um, I think... Wasn't it this book that had the editor's note that was talking about, like, what happened to all the Legion of Doom members? And it's like, editor's note. They were turned into a throne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was this. pretty wild yeah there is some there is some legit great art in this book though yeah there is when i read that editor's box i was like okay i don't remember that at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay let's talk about the art brian you were i was gonna say like especially there are a couple of scenes where uh where, where luthor is basically performing the brain transplant that Mr. Burns does on Homer in that one Treehouse of Horror <laughs> episode. Um, but that that page and the surrounding pages are just like super trippy uh, 
really interestingly laid out art with lots of like with lots of layers of different different scenes kind of just existing on the same page and it's just a really beautiful series of pages and mm -hmm. even when you're getting more straightforward stuff in this book you know Epting and, and Fernandez are so great that almost every page has something that makes you stop and take notice, even when it's dumb shit like, uh, you know, uh, you know, perpetual like Apex Lex and the Batman Who Laughs. Almost every page in this book is gorgeous to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was almost all Fernandez, right? I think there were only. I Only think the pages, pages yeah. yeah, I think the pages with Batman who laughs and Nick's were Epting and then the last few pages at the Hall of Justice. Um, which I guess is actually more thinking, but um, they're both good. It's a good looking book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do find it kind of funny that We've had the the Shazam who laughs built up as this very powerful character, and it just took one Zal Solomon Grundy punch to knock him down. <laughs> but you know, comics. So that's comics, baby. That is comics, baby. Um. Anyway, Vince, do you have next week's comics pulled up yet? Uh, <laughs> no, goddamn it. When we start the show, just Control T. And start a new tab. I do, but then I do, then I always inevitably delete like <laughs> I inevitably delete the tab, and I'm not sure why I do that. Like as the show's wrapping up, I'm like, well, that's it. <laughs> I don't need these anymore. <laughs> don't need to do my patented bit I do every week. <laughs> no, Comic List is not cooperating though either. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. it's weird sometimes. Um... Okay, I got it. Ah, <sighs> Batman 90, Daphne Byrne 3, uh, Dreaming 19, The Flash 750. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I hope that's as good as the Wonder Woman one. Um, Harley Quinn 71, uh, Justice League 42, Justice League Odyssey 19, Lois Lane 9, uh, Strange Adventures number one, <laughs> Superman <laughs> Villains number one, and that's it. There's a oh, fair amount of meat on read, the bone. Gotta read all of Flash Forward before next week, I guess. Nah. Nah, you don't have to do that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, well, if you need to find two-thirds of us, we are on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. And I am at Wilker Fox. If you need to find Vince... You can find him trolling the internet to try and find out Dan DiDio's email address to get him to replace himself on the DC3 cast. <laughs> yep. And uh, I would still choose Vince over DiDio as a regular co-host. Just saying. Aw, gee. Thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome, pal. So anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for coming back, Zach. We missed you. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. <laughs> Vince, you gotta start singing in a minute. <laughs> Here it goes. Tell Ready, me go, Vince, go, go. Guess who just got back? Today?